0: You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Thank you, Gavin. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm really thankful um, that you're here with us this morning. And a special welcome to uh, our Cuba team who got in yesterday and who are already, <coughs> yeah. Um, they were here before the 9 a.m. service getting things ready, even though they got here late yesterday afternoon. Um, just really, really faithful people. Um, and thank you to all our volunteers, whether you are serving today or, or not. Um, take so many, and so many of our church family gets involved and helps in so many ways, big and small. Um, it's, it's, don't, don't, don't think that your labor is in vain, and don't grow weary in well-doing. Um, you're storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust can corrupt through your faithful activity to God's people. Um, What you do here as well as as you scatter throughout middle Tennessee, southern Kentucky, northern Alabama, uh, wherever your jobs take you, you're so faithful at taking Jesus with you. So thank you so much for living the Christian life the way that you do. Um, this is week uh, 49 in our study through the gospel of Mark. If you haven't gotten a Mark journal yet, they're on the back table. Jordan's back there, wave at us, Jordan. There's Jordan, he's got some journals. It's the gospel of Mark with journal pages, every other page. They're free for you. You could spend seven nine nine dollars at your local bookstore or on Amazon, but they're free now if you'd like to get one to journal your way through our study. So some context, Jesus is on his way. He's making his way to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's gonna be worshiped. He's gonna be adored, celebrated, arrested, betrayed, and killed. Jesus and his disciples, his followers, the crowd, the religious, um, the, the needy, the sick, the clumsy, the broken, so many people and so many different types of people are with Jesus as he enters Jerusalem for the final time. Now, throughout the previous 10 chapters, chapter 10, I mean, chapter 11, verse one is where we're starting. So throughout the, the first 10 chapters of Mark, throughout the first 48 weeks that we've spent in this particular book, all of this, we've noticed Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been pointing to the kingdom. He's been healing. He's been doing powerful miracles throughout his days, doing all of this, to lead up to this one moment, to this one trip in Jerusalem. Of all the times throughout his life, through through 33 years of his life, it's all been leading up to this one moment, this one trip into the holy city. Of all the times that he's entered the city of Jerusalem, scores of times in his life, this particular trip will, will mark a significant change, not merely for his life, but for the lives of all peoples throughout history, eternity past all the way into eternity future from all tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations. So Jesus is on his way, making his way into Jerusalem. People are following, the crowds are growing and many are being changed, many are being saved. Some are getting discouraged. Some are getting frustrated, like the religious were getting really, really frustrated with with Jesus and the growing crowd, they felt intimidated. But on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his followers, they, they head into the city of Jericho. And this is what we looked at last Sunday with blind Bartimaeus. So as they enter the city of Jericho, he's celebrated and welcomed by a massive group of people. And then he's leaving Jericho after a lot of ministry that's happened. It's all behind him. His ministry in Jericho's over, so many people think. He's already pressing onward to Jerusalem. And at the last minute, as on his way outside the city of Jericho, making his way to Jerusalem. Somebody screams for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. It was a blind man. They tried to shut him up, but he kept saying it even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and asked him to come to him. This is the last part of chapter 10. We looked at this last Sunday. It's then that he healed Bartimaeus, whose name means son of filth. And he made him a son of God, a child of the king. And he begins to follow Jesus mercifully healing him. And now we come to our passage for today where we're gonna get to work in chapter 11, verse one of the gospel of St. Mark. So Jesus and his disciples are on the move, heading towards Jerusalem, leaving the city of Jericho. Now, when they drew near the suburbs of Jerusalem, like Bethpage and Bethany, the home of Lazarus, they were at the Mount of Olives, which at the base of the Mount of Olives is the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is gonna pray and then be betrayed and arrested the Mount of Olives, which is where he's going to in 44 days, according to our past, you know, timeline in the text, he's gonna ascend from that Mount of Olives. So they're there in the suburbs, there at the, at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them in verse two, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, so soon after you kind of get into the city, you're gonna notice a colt that's tied up on which no one has ever sat. I want you to untie it and bring it to me. So either Jesus had already made arrangements with the owner of this animal or it could be his supernatural insight. Either way, this act fulfills a prophecy made by Zechariah in chapter nine that was recorded 520 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows this. He says this in verse three. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the master, the Lord, has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And so they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they began to untie it. Jesus is a prophet. Like he, he knows exactly what's happening. Brilliant. And some of those standing then said to them exactly what Jesus said they would say to them. <laughs> He's prepared them for this moment. If they say, what are you doing? Then you say this. So they get there and they say, what are you doing? untying the colt. I mean, Jesus set them up perfectly, right? And they told them what Jesus said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and Jesus sat on the colt. Again here, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah 9 verse 9, 520 years before he was born. Yet here, Jesus is claiming this ancient prophecy, this ancient word to be about himself, the one who came in on a colt. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king. Behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Verse eight: Many spread their cloaks on the road, and spread out other leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, Second Kings chapter nine it shows us uh, in regards to uh, then it was King Jehu that people would take their clothing out on the road as a sign of greeting and honoring a ruler as he would come into the city. It's much like today, the red carpet for celebrities. People honor, they celebrate Jesus with their clothing, laying it out before him with palm branches. Now this didn't take place, this took place by the, by the free will of the people. It wasn't government oversight, government decree. The people just, they responded naturally to, to hearing the stories of Jesus to recognizing something special about Jesus. This was the natural response for them to honor someone like Him. Their chants, their songs that they were ushering up that we have even recorded in our text of Hosanna. They're very similar to what's found in the book of Psalms. They're hailing their coming King, praising Him, the offspring of their beloved King David, the one who would usher in prosperity for the Jews they would, he would, he'd be the one that would usher out Rome and its occupying forces. And he would be the one to restore the kingdom of Israel to the glory days of old. See, the crowds were expecting a political leader, a nationalistic leader, but honestly, the people of Israel, they're willing to follow anybody who's gonna stand up to the bully of Rome. That doesn't matter if it's a miracle working rabbi or a violent social reformer. They're willing to follow whoever is brave enough to face Rome. They're just tired of being oppressed. But this moment here with Jesus entering Jerusalem, this tells us that the growing crowd saw something unique about Jesus. Many people entered the city of Jerusalem. This was Passover week. This is the week of the year where everyone who possibly could, everyone who could possibly physically make it to the city of Jerusalem all over the Middle East they would come this week, this very special particular week, as they look back celebrating the Passover of when they were in Egypt, honoring that moment when God faithfully protected the children of Israel when they were enslaved, not taking the firstborn like he would all those others who who did not have the blood over the doorpost, the blood protecting them from the angel of death in the Old Testament remembering that Passover when the Spirit passed over the homes that had the blood marking the doorpost, remembering this as a nation. You see, to this crowd on this particular week, massive crowd, as they celebrated Jesus, they recognized that he was more than just a man. He wasn't your average fellow. He was different. He was, he was a teacher, but he was more than a teacher. He was more than a rabbi. I mean, listen at what they say. Look in verse nine. And those who went before and those who followed, this was a massive entourage as he entered Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, had come descended upon the city of Jerusalem. And there's hundreds in front of him, around him, hundreds behind him. And they're all shouting, save us or Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom. They even know he's coming to establish a kingdom. The disciples didn't even understand part of this. And the crowd understands he's coming to to bring about a new kingdom, the kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Save us in the highest. I mean, this Hosanna language, this is cheering that's reserved for the highest of all praise. It's reserved for praising like the Messiah, the promised one. It's, 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 it's language that's acknowledging a competent, conquering, courageous King is here, which means peace is going to soon follow. Now we may see this moment and think, man, this is special. If you remember flannel graph, you know, growing up, you would see like four people with palm branches, welcoming Jesus. You remember flannel graph, the felt paper, you know, you know, 80s, we around here, yeah. Everybody else, Google it. You'll be fascinated at the graphics of the 80s children's ministry. Um, we might look at this moment where Jesus is coming in and people are taking off their cloaks, their jackets, their prized clothing and, and palm branches, and they're welcoming him into the city. I'm like, man, that's so special. That's sweet. And it certainly is. But man, to be in the audience that day in first century Jerusalem, the religious, the Pharisees, just the, the biblical IQ of the Old Testament and the Torah, the prophets, they would see this and they would know, they would think to themselves, this is very familiar to what we've read with King Solomon. This is strangely familiar with the glory years, the good old days, the days that marked prosperity and freedom, the days before Rome, have begun to occupy us and control us and limit us in what we can do and where we can go. The good old days where we had the temple, we could freely gather the kingdom on earth, money and wealth and power and control. King Solomon. You see, back in 1 Kings chapter 1, we learned that Solomon he rode in on a borrowed donkey where he was anointed king. It was the ushering in of his kingdom. When he rode in on a donkey, he wasn't a king yet. He was coming in to be recognized as the king over Israel, where his throne would be even greater than his father, who was King David. And the crowd, according to first Kings one, they proclaimed loudly, long live King Solomon. And they celebrated, they blew trumpets at the entry of King Solomon. All the people in verse 40 of first Kings one, all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy. So much so that the earth was split by their noise. Why? Why the celebration for King Solomon? Because their King was near. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that most, if not all, the people in the crowd on this day celebrating Jesus, they had the same thing in mind as they did back in King Solomon's day, meaning they weren't thinking eternal. They were thinking right here in the temporal, right here in this moment. You see, they didn't have a suffering servant in mind as their Messiah and King. They didn't yet grasp that their King would have to die to bring about the kingdom that could not be shaken or occupied by Rome. They sang and shouted in verse 10 in your text, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. You see, they saw Jesus coming to bring about the promised kingdom of their beloved King David. I mean, after all they've seen about Jesus, after all the words that have been spoken and witnessed of Jesus and his power and his teaching and the authority with with which he would teach, Of course they're thinking this man is more than a man. Many are thinking he's the Messiah. Here's the thing. Though they would recognize him as Messiah and bringing about his kingdom, no one in the crowd, no one, not even his disciples, even though Jesus told them, they did not understand how he would bring about his kingdom. They didn't get it. You see, they're merely thinking the Messiah. Now all my dreams are gonna come true. The Messiah is here, no more wrong. No more Gentiles, no more control. All the other nations that suppress us are going to bow down to our king and he's here. He's gonna be installed and anointed as king. He's finally here. All the other nations are gonna become our servants. Our political empire is now established. And finally, all others can serve us instead of us serving all others. You see, they're thinking right here, right now. They're only looking with what's immediately before them in this given moment. They're not thinking eternal. They're they're not thinking in the not yet. They're thinking already, this is happening right here. Essentially, they're singing and shouting for Jesus to rule over Caesar. That's what they've got in their mind. Essentially, they're celebrating Jesus to be the force that's going to overthrow Rome. That's why they're cheering. They're not celebrating Jesus as the king over sin. They're not celebrating Jesus as the one who would reverse the curse of the garden with our first parents, which is why we celebrate Jesus, which is why they should have if they would have seen fully what he was doing. They were only thinking their nation's freedom as they ushered Jesus in. They're openly praising Jesus. They're serving Jesus, but they're doing so because they don't want to serve Caesar. You see, so they're cheering as much against Caesar and Rome as they are cheering for Jesus. He just happens to be the one that's going against Rome. They're hailing Jesus as the coming King who'd have God's authority to rule. And this is true, but it's as if Jesus saying, not yet, at least not in the way that you're thinking. And what's astounding to me, what's wild about all this is that Jesus embraces this moment. He, he receives this celebration. He doesn't push back on it. He doesn't say, shh, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, come on now, I'm, I'm a decent guy, but don't shout Hosanna. I'm not a king, I'm not a Messiah, I'm a carpenter. I'm a son of a carpenter, I'm a teacher, I'm just a rabbi. Save that praise for the son of God. You see, Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't push back like this. He welcomes it. He knows it's all true. Even though they don't know exactly what he's doing, what they're saying is true and he receives it. And as he does so, he's fulfilling prophecy each step of his way that he makes towards his arrest, his beatings and his death on the cross on Golgotha. You see, remember, whose idea was it to get the colt to even ride in to the city? It was his. He knew that he was fulfilling prophecy. It was Jesus who sought out the colt. See, Jesus knew not only that he was the Messiah, but he knew that he would die in the city. He knew this. And he was following the plan of God through every step and each moment. But Jesus also knew that those who were shouting Hosanna today, in four days, they're gonna be shouting crucify. Same people. Jesus knows that the very ones who are taking off their, their cloaks and welcoming him, they're soon gonna be taking his clothes and casting lots for them. Jesus knows that those who are waving palm branches today, in a matter of four days, are gonna be waving a cat of nine tails and slinging a hammer as he's pinned to a cross, suspended between earth and heaven. He knows this. But he continues onward. Like Gavin said, his face like flint unshakable, cannot be detoured, cannot be lured away, cannot be bought. He's focused, he's poised, he's moving towards the cross. Why is he doing this? Knowing what's before him, why is he doing it? He's doing all of this for you. There was no other way for you to be forgiven of your sin than for Jesus to suffer the way that he suffered and live the way that he lived. There was no other possibility for you to be with God in heaven after you die here in this life. It's only through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we're told that Jesus endured the cross, all of this with joy, because his suffering was your peace because his pain was your comfort and pleasure, because his death is your life. He was working for you as he faced the cross. He was earning for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now others look in and they don't know what all is happening. They don't know what all is to happen, but Jesus knows. He's fully aware and he's ready, he's poised. You see, things didn't just happen to Jesus. Things happened for Jesus even his arrest, even his death. It's all according to the plan of God to have you with him in heaven. Then we have this strange hinge verse that, that's between the first 10 verses and the latter several. Look at verse 11. He enters Jerusalem and went into the temple. He goes into the temple. And when he had looked around, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late in the evening, probably by himself, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So all eyes are on Jesus. The chatter, the noise, the talking about Jesus, never been this famous. What will he do now that he's been hailed king and welcomed as king? How will he bring about his kingdom? What's his first step? Well, along with the other gospel narrative accounts like Matthew and Luke, we learn that Jesus enters Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. He accepts the praise. He weeps over the city, seeing the city as sheep without a shepherd. And then he inspects the temple all before going to sleep, probably at the home of Lazarus in the town of Bethany. Very interesting statement that impacts where we're going next Sunday this sort of hinge verse, verse 11, it lets us know that Jesus had significant purpose in going straight to the temple that night and all night long, thinking on what he saw there. More on this next Sunday. You know, up until this point in the life of Christ, after three, three and a half years of public ministry, he could have still managed to live a a pretty peaceful life but his words or maybe lack thereof because he didn't shut down the praise. Because of his words or lack thereof, his actions on this particular day, it kind of set in motion a series of events that would either result in overthrowing the Romans and the religious establishment or his death because things were just too public. Things were too big. People were talking. You see, Jesus, he essentially steps steps towards his death by embracing this worship and not shutting it down. Those in power can't tolerate challenges to their authority like this, and they're far too insecure as well. This ruckus has to be stopped. In the eyes of those in power, Jesus, he should have rebuked the audience for what they said about him. He should have set the record straight, telling them he's only a teacher, he's just a rabbi, but he's not king. He should have said that, but he doesn't because he's not a mere rabbi. And so those in power, they've got to shut down Jesus somehow. Before it gets even crazier, they've, they've got to pull him out somehow, maybe, maybe even kill him. I mean, this massive celebration of Jesus during Passover week, it's got the attention of everybody. In many ways, Jesus, he's crossed the point of no return. There's no turning back for him. The city is shaken by these events already at the beginning of Passover week. The word of Jesus is spreading like crazy. The cheers, the commotion, the rumors People are talking about King David and King Solomon and this Jesus fellow, kind of all in the same sentence and thought. And they're talking about the day of the Lord. They're talking about the Messiah. They're saying, Hosanna? I mean, Caesar could have no rival king or ruler. So Jesus must be put in his place. He's getting far too popular. We've got to stop it before it grows. And the religious leaders are more angry and resentful now with Jesus than ever before. Because Jesus is embracing the praises that make him out to be the Messiah, the promised one, the yes and amen to the covenants and promises of God, the long awaited one, the redeemer. I mean, Jesus shows up first riding humbly on a colt and he ends up suffering in the place of sinners to rescue sinners as he's judged and condemned as a sinner by God for us. But next, and we still await this glorious moment, Jesus will come a second time. Revelation 19 tells us he'll be on horseback and he's gonna sovereignly reign over all things. It'll be there that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is in fact Lord. And upon this second coming, he will not rescue sinners. He'll judge sinners. You see, Jesus came the first time to be judged for sinners. He comes the second time to judge them. Will you be with him riding on horseback behind him or will you be before him awaiting his judgment, your eternal sentencing, eternal separation from God and all that's good? My friend, I ask you today to stop resisting Jesus, to remove your proud skepticism and ask for faith Ask for eyes to see Jesus and surrender to him today while there's still time, while there's still hope, that you would cry out to him, asking him for saving faith today because there will not always be this time for you to respond to Jesus. And I ask you not simply merely to, to, to rush you, but because I know that, that you will not and you cannot experience true, meaningful, lasting satisfaction until you trust your life, your whole life and all things of your life to Jesus. I encourage you, I ask you, I beg you to remove your pride, lay your pride aside and say perhaps for the first time in your life what Bartimaeus cried out, son of David, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Even those who are, who are Christians, who've been pursuing the Christian life and holiness for years, call out for mercy you still require God. You still must have God being radically merciful to you every day, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of how holy your life may seem. And never let your theology be so tidy that you lose that childlike desperation and admiration for Jesus. It does not make sense that you're a Christian. Don't let it be old news that he's merciful to you. Let it blow you away that you wake up every morning a Christian. That's not your fault. That's not your doing. You woke up a Christian, Christian. You woke up a Christian today because God woke you up a Christian today. He's the one who's holding fast to you. Let that blow you away tomorrow morning when you wake up and you realize, wow, I love Jesus. Let that do something in your spirit and your heart because that's not you. That's the power of God at work in your life. Don't let it make sense that he's merciful to you. Don't be entitled to his mercy and grace. Blush at it, be shocked by it. Let it move you as you think about it, that God, the creator of all things is merciful to you. When you were born hating him, he reborned you through the power of the Spirit at work in your hearts, causing you to look at Him in admiration and worship. That's all His doing in your heart. Let that move you. Don't drift to the place where you don't appreciate His kindness. Don't drift to the place where you feel you don't need Him to be gracious and powerful in your life. Don't drift to the place where it makes sense for Jesus to like you and be merciful to you. Don't get over the radical grace it is for Jesus to be near you and to know you. Daily admit to yourself that you need his mercy. Don't be so proud, seasoned Christian, mature Christian. Don't be so mature that you don't thank him for his mercy as you wake up every morning. Trust him and draw near to him in a special way every day. Every day is a fresh experience of walking with God in beautiful, real relationship with Him. Where you learn, you know what you learn as you walk with Jesus more and more? You learn how much you need Him. And if you're growing in Christ, if your awareness of how much you need Him doesn't continue to grow, your theology's off. Because the more that you walk with Christ, the more clumsy you realize you actually are. It's like when you're a sophomore in college, you know everything. And the further you get away from that point, the more you realize how little you know. The longer that you're a Christian, it's easy to think that you know it all and that you don't really need them to be kind and gracious and merciful to you because you've been a Christian for so long. You've got your stuff together. Those big sins aren't a problem anymore. Your awareness of your sin should grow more and more as your closeness to Christ grows more and more. So the king has come. The crowds, (laughs) they couldn't help but welcome Jesus. They couldn't, they couldn't resist it. They didn't conjure this up. This just happened. They saw Jesus. They start taking off their coat, laying it down. Honey, I bought that for you. I know, but it's Jesus. He's like the king, you know, I'll wash it. Jesus enters the city with cheers of praise. You know how he's gonna leave the city? to chance of crucify him. What's the difference? What's the difference between Hosanna and crucify him? Same people said these words. The same people saying Hosanna, glory to God in the highest are saying crucify him. The difference is their pride and their expectations. And the same is true for us today. You see, people expected Jesus to make all their dreams come true, to better their current reality, particularly with Rome. That's why they were welcoming him into the city. But Jesus's work isn't mainly to better our current reality. The work of Jesus is to better our relationship with God, bettering our eternal reality. If you simply see Jesus as the one to make your earthly dreams come true, to help you get out of a a bad financial situation or fix your marital problem or help you have an easy, comfortable life, what you're gonna do is you're gonna welcome him into your life with Hosanna and praises, putting your coat and favorite blanket on the road as he enters into your life. But when your expectations aren't met the way you want them to be met, you're gonna curse him and crucify him all over again in your heart. But when your expectations are taking him at his word and not putting words in his mouth. When when you greet him as king, as your representative in his life, that he lived for you as you. As you look at him in his death, realizing he was bearing responsibility, taking responsibility for what you have done through your sin absorbing the wrath of God that's due your sin, he's dying as a substitute for you in your life, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna shout his praises throughout your life, regardless of your current reality. How is it that you see him? How are you greeting him today in your heart and your mind, in your spirit? Do you see him as the humble one, shouldering the great curse for you, interceding for you, near you when you're brokenhearted, or do you see him as the one who only disappoints you? because your current reality doesn't make sense to you. You know, Jesus never promised to make your current reality something pleasant. Don't put words in his mouth. He did promise you persecution. He did promise you suffering, lots of it. He did promise you things like you will be hated. He never said your life is gonna be rosy and easy and comfortable. Yet so many people come to Christ believing this lie. So when life hurts, what do they do? They give up on Jesus. But they, they don't really. They give up on a form of Jesus that they misunderstood because they approach to Jesus that doesn't just come to make our earthly dreams come true. He's all about something much more significant. You see, Jesus did promise to befriend the sinner, He did promise to draw near the clumsy. He did promise to call the weary to himself and it's gonna be safe. He did promise to save the sinner. He did promise that he would reverse the curse for anyone who would simply humble themselves and look to him. He did. He promised this. Jesus did promise that if you trusted and believed in him alone, that he would take care of restoring and taking care of your broken relationship with God the Father. And he does. He did promise to give you eternal life but how does he do all this? He entered the city. He was betrayed by one of his best friends. He was handed over to the Gentiles. He was mocked, shamefully treated. Men and women spit on him, threw all kinds of stuff at him, verbally ridiculed him. They beat him. They flogged him within an inch of his life. They pinned him up to a cross and to make sure he's dead, they stuck a spear in his side. And on the third day he rose, that's how. That's how you have eternal life and peace with God is through the work of Jesus Christ. He did this all in your place for you. He did it for you. And friend, this is what we acknowledge and remember. This is what we set our hearts on as we approach the Lord's table today. He did all this to redeem us back into friendship with God. Come to him on his terms, not putting words in his mouth, but receiving his word into your heart. And by faith, trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, the restoration of your life with his father and eternity with him in heaven. The hymn that we're gonna sing in a few moments kind of puts in story form what is before Christ and his work Throughout chapter 11 and moving on in the text, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners, you and me, to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing our shame, scoffing rude, in our place condemned he stood. And he sealed our pardon, not with a ring, not signing something, but he sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we. Spotless, perfect lamb of God was he. Full atonement is what's required for us to be in relationship with God, but can it really be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry right now in heaven and forevermore, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. And when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. This is what we remember as we come to the Lord's table today. And during this time, it's so easy to sort of get on autopilot, walk up, Mm Mm-hmm, grab, thank you. Yes, dip, Mm mm-hmm, taste, go back to your seat. Stop. In the name of Christ, stop. Think about what you're doing here in communion. Dwell in this moment. Meditate in this moment. Think. 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 You're grabbing hold of bread that is symbolic of the body and flesh of the son of God who lived perfectly for you as your representative. That's wild. And you're gonna take that and you're gonna dip it into juice or wine based on your age or conscience. And that red liquid is symbolic of the blood of Christ. We've all cut ourselves, we've all bled before from a wound. Symbolic of the blood of Christ Jesus, the son of God, the one who spoke creation into existence. Symbolic of his substitutionary death for you so that you don't have to fear death and so that you don't have to try to be perfect in life. He did this for you and for us to casually, nonchalantly, just come up and grab and taste and think nothing about it. God, have mercy on us. Don't take this flippantly. Think on what you're doing as we approach the Lord's table. Repent and ponder. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage here. We're gonna have self-serve stations in the back. We're gonna have members of our prayer team at the back bistro table underneath the light there. For anyone who would just need a team lift in prayer from somebody that they can trust. I promise you, they're good people. They're gonna pray with you over anything that is that you want prayed over. But just don't move so quickly, emotionally and mentally right now. Process what you're doing. Marinate in this moment. Deeply consider, honestly consider what you've heard about Christ and take these things to heart, commit them to prayer and remind yourself that you only come near the Lord's table today because Jesus has already come near to you. And yes, he entered Jerusalem, but did so to enter into your life and heart and so that you could enter into paradise with him. This is what we think of as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray together. Now, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will surely come again. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God, may you be on this time of communion with us and remain with us even through the end of the age. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, thinking about what's happening, I invite you to come remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ. Come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.